Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Alina, you got one of your favorites back today. Tell us who's here. Today we have back one of our favourite archaeologists, Amanda Charles. So welcome, Amanda. Well, thank you so much for having me back. So start by telling us where it is, because I had literally no idea until we started prepping for this podcast. <laughs> so where is it? Yes, indeed. So it is located in modern-day Israel, and it is located midway between Haifa and Jaffa along the Mediterranean coast. So bring your breathing suit, just saying. Uh, and it is now the Caesarea National Park. Tell us, why was it built, where it was built, because it's built somewhere very specific, and when was it built? Right, so I mean, the city and harbour, they are built under Herod the Great, and they're built sometime around 22 to 10 or 9 BCE, and they are located near, or so the city itself, the port city, is located near um, the site of the former Phoenician naval station known as Stratton's Tower. Um, and I love the fact that the actual name Caesarea, it is established during this time. So the name itself actually survives from antiquity uh, because Herod, he builds and he names the city in honor of Emperor Caesar Augustus. So I just like that just for me, just like just makes me like all happy and all the nerd feels like I'm just like, <gasps> it's I don't know. It's just something cool when something survives that long. Um, and you know why it's just... For me, that's fun. Uh, let's talk with Pontius Pilate. Um, so just to give you just, just the sort of like two-sentence background, just, just for those who might not know. Uh, so Judea, uh, it becomes a Roman province in 6 CE. And at this time, Caesarea replaces Jerusalem as its civilian and military capital. And so the city becomes the official residence of the governors, and that includes the prefect Pontius Pilate. Do I have to explain who Pontius Pilate is? Well, just in case, just in case. Uh, he is the official who presides over the trial of Jesus and orders his crucifixion. So for those who are biblical scholars or quite interested in biblical archaeology and history, uh, it was quite a big find when the Pilate stone, as, it, as it's sometimes called, was found because it is the only, and I mean the only one archaeological artifact that names Pontius Pilate definitively, and it was found in Caesarea. So he existed? As far as, yes, uh, there was a prefect named Pontius Pilate, and there's an actual inscription that we don't actually really know what the full inscription says, in the sense of we don't really know what the purpose of the inscription is. Like, is it commemorating something? Like, we don't know. But what it does say, and what we know for sure, is it actually says, well, in Latin, or... Ooh. edit out Latin. I'm not sure if it's Latin, but it says Pontius Pilate and it says prefect of Judea. 
So not only is it like just a Pontius Pilate, like it's that, it's that one because it has his title. Tell us, isn't there a ring as well? There is, yeah. In 2018, there was this uh, thin copper alloy ceiling ring and it was found in Herodium. And it has an inscription that basically reads, of Pilate. Um, and Pilate was apparently quite a rare name. So there's a couple, few, there's, a, there's a few a few possible options. One, it could have been his ring. It could be that it's saying, of Pilate, like, this is my ring. Um that's sort of doubtful because it's not made of terribly high quality materials. Um, so another couple of theories are that uh, it belonged to somebody else named Pilot. just happened to be sort of like the Bort license plate of the Simpsons in that, yes, my son is also named Bort. Um, and another possibility is that it belonged to somebody who worked for him or some, some sort of like affiliation with him in that sense, but was of a lower rank. It sort of, I don't know, it kind of almost feels like, like, what if it was, like, one of those kind of cheesy, like, you know, girlfriend kind of jewelry, but, like, in a horrible, like, I belong to him kind of ways. I don't know. But it's also true. Belongs to, belongs to Pilot. Right? It's a bit, it's a bit funny. But, well, I mean, that's, that's me judging. I'm a judger. No. <laughs> <laughs> I've got, I've got another one for you. Okay. So Go everybody it. out there, Go don't laugh it. at me. Okay. Please mm. do not laugh at me. Because I've been, I've been watching Nightfall. Okay, mm-hmm. so are you ready? I am waiting on bated breath. Hit me. Okay. Is it true that the Holy Grail was found in Caesarea? Which one? And cue the laughter. Indeed. <laughs> yes. Um, there's apparently about 200 different candidates for those keeping track. <laughs> so the, uh, the Genoa chalice is is what was found in Caesarea. Um, a few other, a few other kind of notable, well, uh, the, the ones that, uh, well, some, some nice mentions, but uh, we won't talk about, but uh, there's the uh, Valencia chalice, uh, the chalice of Doña Raca, Doña Araca, okay. Antioch chalice, the Nantios cup, which when you look at the Nantios cup, it like just gives you all the sort of like Indiana Jones feels of like, but Jesus was a carpenter you know, you have chosen wisely. Like that's whenever I, when I look at it, that's what I think. How, how do you feel about stories about poisonings and revenge? Uh, we love it. Let's do it. I'll do what I can. There's lots of death. Don't you worry. It's going to put Game of Thrones to shame. All right. Yes. Okay. So here's your little, your little crusader history context. Uh, so for those who need a refresher, the Franks take Jerusalem in 1099. Okay. So the, so the following year, all right, early in 1100, we actually have a little bit of a political sort of situation kind of set up. It's actually it's been 1100. It's not, not too bloody, you know, yet, but give it not too much time. So early in 1100, you have the emirs, which are like the city officials. And you've got these emirs of Ashkelon, Caesarea, Acre. These are all coastal cities. And they send delegations to Godfrey of Bouillon. And he's the first ruler of the kingdom of Jerusalem. Okay, and he's one of the leaders of the First Crusade. And the emirs, uh, um, you know, they offer Arab horses and other gifts, as well as letters offering a monthly tribute of 5,000 gold Byzants. I don't know how much that is in today's currency, but I'll take 5,000 gold somethings. And in return for all these lovely gifts, uh, they ask for immunity from attack. And Godfrey accepts. So cool, they strike a bargain. Um, Godfrey 
you know, then he goes, you know, on tour, he's touring his domains and his tributaries. And, uh, well, he's offered dinner by the Emir of Caesarea. And okay. So he gets a little murdered. Yeah. So despite like the, the supposed friendly relations they have, so he falls gravely ill and he later dies in Jerusalem in July, uh, around so July 18th, 1100. And it is from suspected poisoning from the dinner. However, this dinner takes place in June. So you got to wonder, okay, is this like a really slow acting poison? I read, and there's conflicting evidence and conflicting primary sources because of course there are. Um, and I read somewhere that there was possibly a poisoned apple involved. And I was like, well, hello, fairy tales. That's fun. Um, but <laughs> let's also just face it. It's the Middle Ages. I mean, you just like die of stuff all the time. I mean, okay. So, you know, fast forward just a, like a little bit, a little bit further on. You're in March or April of 1101 and King Baldwin I, who is Godfrey's brother, Okay, he decides to to renew the treaties with the emirs. Um, he's an ass in the sense that <laughs> <laughs> you know it's uh, it's 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 very it's very two faced, and that he's basically like, yeah, I'll, I'll renew these treaties. Um, and ha- remember back to the fact that we're talking about like mercantile folk, um, and basically, you know, he's giving this appearance of like continued friend- friendly relations, uh, but in total reality, he's just planning to attack the cities. Um, so here we've got some revenge, you know, for the brother's death. Uh, but we also have some politics involved as well. Cause you know, may as well just be a multitasker. Uh, so by this time, I mean, you know, when, when in the Holy land, uh, yeah. So basically by this time, King Baldwin, he only has this port in Jaffa. And so he needs more ports, so he makes a deal with the Genoese and they agree to help him uh, basically collect more ports in exchange for a third of the booty of the, you know, of the goods as it were, uh, as well as a street in each city for a market. Um, so now we come into April 1101, they take our Souf, uh, which is also a coastal town. They leave a small garrison and they, pr- they, they start to prepare to move towards Caesarea. Um, but before they actually leave Arsouf, a delegation from Caesarea arrives and they protest. And they're all like, oh, please don't attack us. Like, like, please. And yeah, Baldwin's like, yeah, well, you, like, you killed my brother. So no. I'm just cutting out the fat. I'm just like saying how it is. No, no, no. It's good. We want the, ju- we want the juicy bits. We don't need the politics yeah. in this. The politics are boring. Exactly. Exactly. So. Here we go. We're in May 1101. The army and the Genoese fleet, they, they move north and they take up siege positions around Caesarea. Yeah. So he just goes all in. He orders uh, King Baldwin, like he orders the construction of stone throwing catapults. He's got a wooden tower to command the walls. He has the orchards outside the walls completely destroyed because he's afraid that like the art, the uh, orc, orchard's foliage might conceal arrows shot during enemy ambushes like he just goes all out wow that's a bit paranoid oh yeah just a touch but also he was like we're just doing this in a water like we're getting her done um and yeah the siege only actually lasts about 15 days that's quite short uh, yes that's pretty short um and you have all these like as they how's it described basically unceasing violent engagements i'm sure that was not pleasant. 
Um, and yeah, ultimately the inhabitants of Caesarea, they're just like not used to fighting. Um, and they just offer less resistance because yeah, they're... So how does all so, of this end? Well, they got some ladders out. The Franks and Genoese, they scale the city walls and they quickly seize the towers and the fortifications and then the gates are open, they're unbarred and just the city is broken open by force and this allows the king and all of his troops to just come in. Um, they break, so the Franks, they break into the houses, they kill the people who are inside, they take position of the private apartments. Um, according, to, to, according to William of Tyre, uh, many of the people inside the houses they try to hide their riches by swallowing gold pieces and precious gems yeah and i've got like a little quote here according to william of tyre quote this roused the cupidity of the christians to such a degree that they clove their victims through the middle in search of treasures that might be hidden in their vital also unfortunately lots of people fled uh lots of the citizens they fled to the great mosque um and the great mosque itself was uh, it occupies an elevated position, and that's where the, temp- the the temple built by Herod in honor of Caesar Augustus, that's where it used to stand. So the mosque is kind of on top, or it's near nearby. It's in the elevated area anyway. Um, but the Franks, they force their way inside, and they just massacre everyone seeking refuge. So that's not awesome for them. Um, William of Tyre, it's really kind of funny, though, because he like tries to sort of paint the Franks in a slightly merciful light amidst all this insane bloodshed. Um, and he claims that the young boys and girls were spared, as well as the emirs and the Qadi, which are, again, the city officials. Uh, and apparently they were kept for ransoming. So they've taken the city, the Franks and the Genoese have taken the city. And, you know, if people are sort of swallowing their treasures, you can imagine how rich a city it is. So the booty, the you know, the, the goods are immense and they're divided amongst uh, King Baldwin's men and the Genoese. Uh, supposedly the Genoese are gifted a third of Caesarea as payment for their services. And uh, they receive further spoils from the Great Mosque, including a, quote, vessel of the most green color. They thought it was made of emerald. Thought, they thought it was, and it's really interesting, so it's actually a 15th century source that thought that the cup was carved from a single huge emerald. Wow. Uh, yeah, but it's actually glass. So talk to us about the walls of Caesarea. You're in love with the walls. Uh, What's this about the pattern? So in sections of Caesarea, you have a whole bunch of reused Roman granite columns. And they are placed uh, along the walls. And they're basically kind of like interspersed in like this checkerboard pattern. And they're just stunning. Uh, If you Google Sidon, um, it's a sea castle in Lebanon and that one's still relatively standing. So you get a really, really nice impression of what Caesarea would have maybe looked a little bit more like during its heyday in the sense of having these columns. Um, but there are still large chunks of walls at Caesarea where you see these columns and they are different colors and they are stunning and they're huge and they're just hella pretty. Like they're really, really cool. Um, in Ashkelon, you get just sort of like a single sort of line of columns sort of near the base of the city walls. Um, Biblos also has uh, this sort of checkerboard sort of fashion where you just have all these wonderful columns. Um, and it's thought that um, if you look at, for example, Jerusalem, 
if you look at the, the walls of the old city, you'll have these sort of circles, these roundels that are in the wall. And it's thought that those are carved to look like reused columns. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah. No, and you get that at a number of different sites as well. Um, and sometimes they'll have like these really nice, like sort of flower patterns in them. And um, yeah, they're just fabulous. They're just, yeah. They're- Imitation is a form of flattery, isn't it? I dare say it is. I dare say. Yes. But why were they like that? I mean, there's got to be a reason. There's a, there's a couple of different theories. Um, there's sort of like three sort of big arguments. Um, the biggest one that I always get told or uh, lightly suggested, if you will, at uh, conferences is, uh, well, weren't they just there to strengthen the walls? Um, and we do actually, so this is fair. Uh, I mean, they're granite. They're very, very strong and they're interspersed in this like you know and they're pretty much found all along most of the walls um in Caesarea's case they're mostly concentrated in these two towers that would have flanked and defended the uh, citadel uh just to give you an idea of the site itself you have a citadel or like a castle tower bit that's on a promontory so it's sort of uh defended on sort of three sides by the water and then when you're facing land though there isn't really much there so they've put up two towers on either side and then out outside of that then you've got like this big sort of this like square wall but we'll talk more about the shape of it in a second um so you get the get this uh this one theory that's to strengthen the walls uh i do have a quote for you and it's i shall quote away and it is um from ibn al-farat and he's recounting um, Bebar's siege of Caesarea in 1265, which again, we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, and here's my quote. The citadel known as Al-Qadra, the green, was one of the most strongly fortified of its kind. For Louis uh, had had, now Louis in this case is referring to Louis IX, had had granite pillars carried there, which he had arranged with skill. No finer construction was to be seen in Al-Sahil, nor any stronger or loftier, for around it was the sea whose water flowed in its moats. It could not be mined because of the granite columns used crosswise in its construction, and even were it undermined, it would not fall. Uh, If any of you ever go to St. Andrews, yeah, now uh, there's a really cool uh, mine and countermine that survives, and if you're very lucky, you can walk the length of it and so essentially what you have is in saint andrew's castle you have one force who's trying to gain access to the castle so they dig, dig a tunnel and they're aiming to kind of like end up inside or possibly to get underneath the walls so that they can maybe set something ablaze to then undermine and make the towers fall and then you have the countermine where you have people inside the castle who are like whoa hold on now and they dig and they're they're listening and they're trying to find the people who are trying to dig into their castle and they do find them. Um, so yeah, so if you get the chance, St. Andrews, uh, definitely go check that out. But yeah, so Caesarea, um, I mean, so that sounds like a very good theory. So, you know, they have these columns of the time they were considered for strengthening purposes. Um, the other, another theory is that honestly, they're so pretty because when you see them in wall construction, you have, these beautiful facing stones, which we call dress stones. And those are like the pretty outer stones. Um, And then you have that 
on the outside and then the inside you have a rubble core which is just rubble like bits of rock that are mixed with mortar and that's packed in the middle and that's to make the wall really really strong um and then in the case of caesarea and the other sides you have these reused columns um but for my sort of point of it is like okay if if you're just using them for strengthening purposes why not just sort of put them in the rubble core or you know, and then just sort of cap them with the pretty stones on the outside. So I think that it's fair to say that they're also used because they're beautiful, because they really are very striking. Um, and there could be sort of a more practical way of just sort of covering them up, as it were. And they also do appear in different parts of the wall where they are covered. So um, there's definitely some some different arguments that can be placed there. And now the third one, and this is where you're going to have to bear with me, They're kind of like good luck charm. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, this is what we call a potropeia. Uh, during the 19th century, you have uh, this gentleman named Captain Warren, and he basically claims that using columns in this manner, like to strengthen, like the, he's basically talking about the argument of just using columns to strengthen the walls. And he says that it's just, it, you know, it's not actually not necessary. Uh, the mortar used to render the stone solid, um, I mean, it's, it's really, really hard to break. And to the point where, like, you can, like, shoot this with gunpowder, as in, like, modern-day artillery, and you're still going to have problems taking down the walls. So, and on top of that, I mean, this lovely checkerboard pattern and such, it doesn't exist all the way around the walls. It's really just in certain specific areas. Um, So, like, in the case of Caesarea, where it's really prominent in these two towers, which the base of them survive, but the, the, the height of them don't. Um, you know, if you're a visitor going to the castle, you're going to see these massive, um, these massive towers, but the whole rest of the site, you're not going to see them because they're not there. They're like hidden in the construction. Um, so I feel like that has like um, just sort of more of a, uh, there's more meaning to it. And just to explain apotropea a little bit more, and uh, that's, again, the fancy word to basically just talking about warding off evil. There's a few different motivations when you reuse items, when you, another fancy word for reuse is spolia. So when you spoliate items, um, and some of them is basically 
you are using an object from a past culture. And in this case, they're columns and they're taken from religious sites. So they're taken from the temple and you're basically taking it and you're using it for a whole new function. And part of that is you're sort of, it's sort of to advertise to other people that you have subjugated past cultures that you have sort of taken it on and you've taken on sort of like the magic, the religiosityness of those stones and you've made them your own. Cause even though, I mean, the crusades are like a really highly, um, there are a whole series of political wars. I mean, they, they're, they're political wars that are really motivated by a lot of religious factors as well. And mm. I mean, in the middle ages, there's a lot of religion going on. Um, and it's, uh, so for my, so for my opinion on it, my, my argument, I just feel that you can't take apart the two. Yeah. So I feel that you're, you're strengthening the walls through like a, like a physical, actual, you know, hard bit of granite, but you're also adding to the protection through like this magical means, you know, you're, um, you're sort of beefing it up with your good luck charms. Take a look at your rabbit's foot on steroids. Well, let's, let's stick with the walls because Go for it. The, uh, the ancient city's original walls, well, they're described to the Romans between 22 BCE and um, 390 CE. Do mm. they change at all between the Roman period and the Crusades? Yes. So during the Roman period, um, you basically have this semicircular town wall that extends far, far away from the current, what we would consider like the Crusader era town, town uh, wall. Uh, basically, the city itself um, is taken by, or it's occupied by the Byzantines in 390 CE. Uh, and then we have the Arab conquest uh, in 640 CE. Basically, sometime between 640 and 1101, probably the 11th century, um, this is where uh, you have um, the Muslims scale back the Roman walls into probably more the squarish shape that uh, encompasses what we consider the crusader walls today. And so that's a big change uh, because it's, and it's really kind of funny because when you go to, if you, if you just visit the crusader part of, well, I mean, it's not just crusader, but if you visit the, that part of the city, um, it's huge. Like it's a really big part. And then when you look at a map and you go, that's where the Roman wall is. Like that's, that is way out there. <laughs> um, so you can kind of understand from a strategic, practical point of view, okay, if we have a slightly smaller city to take care of, it's still a big city, but if we have a slightly smaller city to take care of, that should be easier to defend. So Lord and Lady Steels, right? Tell us, what are they and are they as glamorous as they sound? Well, I sure think they are. I think just about no one would agree with me. They're basically, they look like coins, but they're not coins. What we have is a really cool collection of documentary seals that survive. And in the Holy Land, these are made out of lead, which means they survive really, really quite well. You probably, when you think of documentary seals, you probably think of like someone pouring wax and then like stamping like a signet ring or a big seal matri matrix, um, you know, into wax. But in in the Holy Land you, and in the Mediterranean with the climate, you tend to see lead used more. Um, and one of the thoughts on that is that just that lead survives better in the climate. 
Um, so yeah, so they look like coins. You've got an obverse and a reverse. And on one side, you have this depiction of a knight who's um, on a horse and he's got armor and like a shield and banners and that kind of thing. Um, but then on the other side, you have this depiction of the city walls. And I just think they're the coolest things ever because for such a small little object, they contain so much information. So, right. I want to know, is it possible mm. to own these walls? Because can you? Is it a thing? It is. So when you have the Franks coming in and they've taken possession of the Holy Land, the land itself is broken up into fiefdoms. So Caesarea, for a time belongs to the Lord of Caesarea or, and at sometimes the Lady of Caesarea. Um, would you like to hear about my most favorite seal? Go for it. Tell us about the most favorite seal. It belongs to a lady. It's, I mean, it, but it's also the biggest seal. So that's just awesome. And also, also, I got to say, the depiction of the Crusader walls on that seal, mm-hmm. oh yeah. Yeah, no, they're they're looking pretty sweet. They're looking good. It belongs to Lady Julia, but it's great on her side of. So she does she does share the seal with her husband, but she is Lady. She is Lady of Caesarea, and on the one side with the knight, it has her husband's name Adamar. But on her side, she has the castle wall side, and it says Juliana Domina Caesarea. So she is Domina. She is Lady of Caesarea. Oh, wow. So she actually owns parts of these walls. She does. She does. Uh, and we know this because she gifts parts of them away. <laughs> so. Can you expand any more on this? Uh, so, yeah. So, Julianne, uh, along with her husband, Ademar, they actually grant several properties to religious houses and to individuals. In 1206, uh, she, uh, with the consent of her husband and her son, goes to the third. They actually grant the Teutonic Knights two towers, houses, and a garden in Caesarea. Uh, in 1207, uh, she, along with her husband as well, uh, they seal a document which grants a house, three carucats of land at Carfilet, and the castles of Pharaon and Saint-Jubi uh, to the hospitallers for the salvation of her parents. Hugh and Isabel's souls. So uh, this also kind of plays into my argument of that these walls have, I mean, they've got, they've got some, they've got some standing. They've got uh, a lot of pull in the, in the religious world. If you can trade these to, you know, holy order to military orders and, you know, you can buy your, your parents way into heaven as well as your own. There, now, there are caveats. There are caveats. Um, should there be some sort of siege, military, something or other come up, uh, she is allowed to take back the walls um, and then use them. But it is up to the uh, military orders to upkeep the properties and such that she has gifted them, as it were. So almost like a lease, kind of. So do, anyways. So why do the walls look like they do now? Because... Um, obviously, obviously in Ascalon, it uh, the walls get destroyed. Do they get destroyed at mm. all in Caesarea? Once or twice, or like six times. Yes, or I 
I didn't actually count it. It's a lot. <laughs> quite a lot. Okay, fair enough. It's, it's quite a lot. It's quite a lot. Um, so if you listened in when I chat about Ashkelon, um, if you are at all knowledgeable about Saladin, you have the Battle of Hattin in 1187. And so between 1190 and 1191, Saladin is destroying a whole bunch of coastal towns, including Caesarea. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, in 1192, uh, Caesarea is actually returned to the Franks as part of the Treaty of Jaffa. And this is actually when we think that Lady Julianne would have taken over the fiefdom. So she sort of took over a ruin, potentially. Um, which is interesting because her seal is seriously like the biggest and the best. So you're like, how, how ruined were they? And also was this like a fantastical vision of, of these walls? Um, it's a very good, uh, very good lesson in uh, critically evaluating your sources. <laughs> don't necessarily always believe the pictures or do because we don't know. Uh, in 1217, you have King John de Brienne and he, he starts refortifying Caesarea's walls only to have them demolished again two years later in 1219 and 1220 by al-Muazam Isa. And then eight years later in 1228, refortifications begin again uh, by the Germans under the command of uh, Heinrich of Limburg. And then those walls are actually completed by Louis IX in 1252. So when you go see the site, because you absolutely all must, like it's, it must be on your top, your top list of things to go. Just you, you have to go. Um, you see these, just this fantastic moat that has, you've got the, the, the counterscarp, you've got this lined moat, you've got the, well, it used to be lined. I, it's not super lined anymore. It was likely lined. Um, and you have these trapezoidal shaped glassy slanted wall things that's super technical terminology right there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You'll see it and you'll just be like, no, I totally get what you're saying. I get it. I get slanty wall thing. Got it. Um, That go. So like they slant from the base of the moat all the way up to the base of the walls. And there's still like little bits of walls left and some bits of arrow slits. Um, But the, just the moat itself is so imposing and huge and I walked the whole moat. Don't know if I was allowed to, but I did it anyway. Nobody caught me, so it's cool. Um, and you can see the posterns, and it's just it's just insane. So that's part of how they look right now. Kind of a bit of a mess in the sense of you look at it and lots of swearing ensues while you know it's three a.m. and you're trying to go. What does that mean? <laughs> why why did you do that again the question of why comes up um just like what wh- why yeah so some parts are a bit hodgepodgey and other parts you just look at and you're like yep totally get where you're coming at case made at arrow slits hardcore awesome um but there are two last big destructions so after louis builds the walls does this massive awesome r- overhaul um, he probably changes the line of the walls a little bit from the Muslim outline. Um, so after 1252, then we have probably the biggest destruction in 1265, and that's Baybars. That's the Mamluks. Um, and I have I have some some source material for for that if you'd like to hear how he did it. Yes. 
Absolutely. All right. Now, there's lots of attacking. There's lots of all that sort of stuff going on. Okay, so he does a so when he attacks the city, he does it in like this quite a systematic way. Um, they basically like they encircle the city, they throw themselves into the trenches, by which I think they mean the moat, um, and then they use the these iron horse pegs together with tethers and halters, um, and they climb up the sides. So I feel like it's probably a sort of ladder kind of situation. Um, or I'm thinking like super awesome, like 1960s spy era, like, you know, when you've got like the like little like metal hook and you kind of go and like toss it over the side. I don't know if that's how that happened, but I want to think that maybe it did. Um, let's see here. They climb up on all the sides. They set up their banners. Uh, the city gates are burnt and the defenses are torn away. And at this point, the inhabitants, they flee to the citadel. And the Sultan sends letters with the good news to the regions. Um, and he sets up his mangonels and mangonels are kind of like, a, they're a type of trebuchet uh, or catapult. And um, I'm going to get like hate for calling a trebuchet a catapult. I know, but I just, it's, it's a thing that throws things to walls. That's fine. That's um, fine. And, you know, so he sets these up around, uh, you know, against the Citadel. He pushes forward with the, with the siege. Um, so as they say, quote, the Muslims continue to attack the citadel, bombarding it with their mangonels. At one moment, the Sultan, that's Baybars, would be shooting arrows from the top of a church in front of the citadel. So that's likely the mosque that was then converted into a church, into the Church of St. Peter, which the base still remains, so you can go see it. And then at another, he would mount and plunge into the sea, sea waves to fight. The Sultan remained, remained steadfastly at the front of the fighting. He did not go out to his uh, delis, which is like a tent or pavilion, um, which would act as like his administrative headquarters. But he stayed in the church with a company of crossbowmen, shooting away and preventing the Franks from climbing to the top of the citadel. So they really had them hunkered down. Uh, and then Caesarea's end comes just six days after Baybar's late, late siege. And so you've got um, Ibn al-Farat, and he's describing the final scene of Caesarea. The quote, Then on the night of Thursday, halfway through Jamada the first, the month already mentioned, which for them is, uh, or for us is the 5th of March. Uh, the Franks came and surrendered the citadel with its contents. The Muslims climbed up to it from the walls, burned its gates and entered it from above and below while the call to morning prayer was made from its top. The Sultan went up to it and then shared out the city between his emirs, his personal officers, his Mamluks and his Halka. After which he began the work of demolition. He dismantled and, taking a pickaxe in his hand, he started on this work himself. Seeing him, the Muslims imitated him, setting to work themselves, while he took part in this himself with his own hands, getting a coating of dust. I just don't think he necessarily... I'm not saying he did a bad job, but, but I think it bears mentioning that in 1291, um, the city is apparently raised again, as in, like, flattened again even though there are absolutely no historical sources saying that the city had ever been uh, refortified or anything in between the time. But yeah, so in 1291, uh, Sultan 
Ashraf Khalil, apparently, uh, he's going up the coast and he's like re-demolishing the coastal town. But, and also to that, I want to say, again, how well did you destroy it? Because there's still a lot left. So oh. I'm, just, I'm just saying. Um, but then, you know, then that opens up the lovely interpretation of, okay, so when you say destroyed, what do you mean by destroyed? Um, Amanda, listen, thank you so much for joining us. We talked today about the Holy Grail. Is it real? Is it the real one? We talked about wars, how much you love wars, how much we now love wars. So amazing. Thank you so much for joining us again. No, thank you so much for having me. It's just so much fun. I love it. Join us tomorrow when we, as in historians, will be fighting back. We'll have a program with a panel of historians talking about statues and what the problem is with rewriting history instead of educating people. And we will also have a special program on Winston Churchill, uh, an idiot's guide to Winston Churchill, because there seem to be a lot of idiots out there. And most of them reared their head on Twitter last week. But we'll get into lots more depth on that. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower, and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.